If I were to ask uh, people that I know what their favorite passage of Scripture was, most of them, e even people outside the kingdom of heaven, could tell you a verse. Those who, who know Christ, who walk with Christ, they could give you a text that at some time in their life has moved them or, or that they love or they've, they've you know, maybe got it up on the mirror or on, on their desk or something. And, and even friends of mine that, that don't know Jesus can still give me a favorite verse of theirs, usually taken out of context for their own uh, good, but they could give me some sort of text nonetheless. And, 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 I, and, and I would have to think that you, you, you could, you know... Uh, if, if for everybody here, if you've run with Christ, if you've lived with him for a while, you, you could you probably have a verse or two that you you love that is a favorite verse to you. But, but here's one of the things I've noticed over the years. I've noticed that it really boils down to, I don't know, about the same nine verses that we sort of cling to all the time. And if we had time to have the conversation here this morning, I guarantee you could name them. Like, like I almost guarantee that there are people in this room that have a coffee cup somewhere or a t-shirt or some other item that has Philippians 4.13 on it. And that's the one that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse. And, and we, we put that out there. We, you know, we've all had that day where we've just been sort of beat up on and, and, and we're like, what am I going to do? Ah, I know, and we pull out the Philippians 4.13, or, or there's Romans 8.28, uh, or, or the 23rd Psalm, or Jeremiah 29.11. Oh, we can go on and on. There's these certain verses that we love. And so, so we have these verses that we really like, but the reality is we also have other passages of Scripture that can cause us an unbelievable amount of angst and frustration. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Uh, let's go to, we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3. There are a lot of, as we read this, there's a lot of really idealistic uh, uh, ideas in, in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 7, and I'll explain what I mean with what I'm talking about. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now that's the, the Greek word there is the idea of dung or, or excrement. Uh, and you need, you need another word or you're walking with me here. Good, okay, I'm not going to give you another word for it. In, in other words, uh, he says in order, he says I, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but from that that uh, which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now I love this text. It is inspirational and it's beautiful and I love this text. I really love it. I really love it until I try to lay my life down on top of it. Because when I lay my life down on top of it, then this text becomes weighty and maybe even frustrating and agonizing in ways for me because what the Apostle Paul just said was, he said, in my life, everything is of lesser value than Christ." 
and I'll pay any price to know him more. He says, you want to take my health? Then take my health because he's better than my health. He says, you want to take my family? Then take my family because he's better than my family. You want to take my kids? Then take my kids because he's better than my kids. Everything, he says, I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus. And I don't even know that here in in 2019, almost 2020, in Marion, Arkansas, that I can even really fully comprehend what he's unpacking for us here here today. Because here I am, I'm 39 years into my journey with Jesus Christ. And I'm going, I'm looking at this and I'm reading it and I'm saying, I'm nowhere near this. If anything, if I examine my life closely and honestly, I might just prove that there are tons of things in my life that I value more than Christ. So this is one of those texts that if I'm not careful, it's paralyzing to me because it makes me begin to question, do I? You see, that's why I love David in the Scriptures. I think that's why why we all love the Psalms because David is like, yes, God, you are good and you're right. And we love you. And then you turn the page and he's like, why God? And so we read that and we're like, I love this guy. I like David. But then you read, you go to, to, to Paul and he's, and he's like, to, to live is, to Christ, is Christ and to die is gain. And I say, but I don't want to die. He says, I count all things as rubbish. As, I count all things as dung. I mean, are you catching that? He's not, he's not even saying all things are secondary next to Christ. He's saying it's like a pile of dung when I compare it to Christ. And if you're like me, you read Paul and, and you're like, do I even know the same Jesus that he knows? So this text, in that way, is, is very weighty and, and can be frustrating and difficult. And then the new year rolls around. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but there's something very interesting about this time of year in our culture because everybody, for whatever reason, believes that they can be more this next year than they were in the past year, right? So we all have our New Year's resolutions. We have all these things that we say, and it's this evaluation period that takes place in our culture at this time of the year. And part of that is because every magazine article and everything on television is saying, start the new year right. You can do this. You can do this. And there's this idea of newness. There's this idea of a fresh start. There's this longing within us to walk away from things that have hindered you and begin to do things differently in our life. And so at this time of year, you know, I look at the text like this and I say to myself, thinking about Restoration Life Church, and I think we can make strides this year. But I also, when I do that, it's with a, with a great deal of hesitation because I know human tendencies and I also know my own history. Like, like let me explain it like this. On, on the first day of class in college, I don't know how many of you can relate with this. Some of you type A personalities, maybe you can't relate with this, but... But on the first day of class in college, you know what? I always had my supplies ready, had paper and pens and pencils, a new notebook. I mean, I was highly motivated. They would pass out the syllabus on the first day of class. I'd I'd look it over and see what the requirements of the class were. And I'd be looking at it and say, this paper isn't due for four months, but I'm going to do it today. Today, this is the the semester. 4.0, baby, this is going to be it. Then three weeks later, I'm in class like, Hey, man, do you have any paper? Hey, how about a pen? You, you, anybody relate with what I'm talking about? 
So I, historically, I know I'm that guy. So I approached 2020 with a little nervousness, but I love the next part of this text because the next part of the text says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect. And for me, I get to that verse and suddenly there's a sigh of relief because I want to be that guy. I want to be the Philippians 3 man with all my heart. And, and Paul goes, and, you know, not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now I want you to notice something really interesting about this text because there, there seems to be this sense of dis discontentment in the heart of Paul, which is really mind-boggling if you study the, the life of Paul. Because Paul in this text is going, I want to know him. I, I, I want to know him. I want to know him. And I read that and I think to myself, didn't you get to hear his audible voice? Because I didn't, I didn't get to hear that. Didn't you go to the third heaven? We don't even really know what that is for sure. You wrote a huge portion in the New Testament. You're the greatest missionary that our faith has ever seen. Your handkerchief healed people and you want to know him? I think you know him. But Paul's saying, no, 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 I'm not that man yet. I am not the, the one that counts it all as loss. I'm not there yet. There, there seems to be this holy discontentment built into, into the heart and the soul of Paul that makes him say, no matter what I've seen, no matter what I've experienced, I still have not arrived. There's still more to know. And, and think about this man's life. I mean, the, the Spirit of God moved through him so powerfully that in Ephesus, the whole socioeconomic makeup of the city changed. Riots broke out because of the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. And I mean, this is a man that's seen things well beyond us. And you know, you and I, when people get sick, we lay our hands on them and we pray for them that, that God will heal them. But Paul, he just walks up to people and prays for them and they get up from the sick bed and walk away. And that's, a, that's kind of a different type of power that most of us walk in. He, he prayed for people at times that were dead and they came back to life life and and I don't know about you but I've never had anybody get out of their casket and head home when I was done praying and here he is this man is saying I'm not there I want to know him deeper I need more see there's there's something about this holy discontentment that's supposed to be hardwired into our soul and look at what he says next. I mean, there are going to be two ideas here. And this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time here today. There are going to be two ideas. Verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Now, there's two things I want to mention here. First of all, you know that Paul's a preacher because he's going to say one thing I do, and then he's going to list three different things. So that's how you know he's a preacher. Uh, but, but that's neither here nor there. He says, one thing I do, then he rattles off three things. Now, what does, what does that mean? That means that these three things are all one idea. They're all one idea. You can't do part of it and have it down. This is a holistic kind of thing. The one thing comes in three parts. That's what he's saying. So let's look what he, he does in an effort to strive towards being the, the Philippians 3 man. Verse 13, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. The first part of that is, he says, forgetting what lies behind. I'm going to stop there. 
You know what? According to Scripture, there can be things in our past, events, periods of time, circumstances. There can be things that that we've been a part of that can make our pursuit of Jesus difficult now. There can be things in our past, things that we've been part of, things that we've done that can hinder our current pursuit of Jesus. Now, and I want you to understand, Paul is not writing this in some uh, abstract way, but it's from personal experience. I'll show you what I mean. Flip over to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is a time when, when the, the church is in, enjoying one of its most peaceful times in history, that things are going well, miracles are happening, hundreds if not thousands of people are getting saved daily. And then one day, uh, a man named Stephen gets up in, in the synagogue and he preaches a message that was not unlike other messages that were were going uh, out in the synagogues during that day, but this time things turned violent. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he, speaking of Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And if you're, if you're kind of new to church, this is basically, basically the process of a bunch of people picking up rocks and pelting a man uh, until he died. But look at this next line. He says, And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was later uh, became known as Paul, who is the author of Philippians chapter 3. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out in a loud, loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which is just a beautiful New Testament way, talking about when we, when we die and go home to be with the Lord. But then look at chapter 8, verse 1, because you understand... The verses and chapter divisions they were put in later. This is one long story. The verse 1, chapter 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now go over to chapter 9, verse 1 of the book of Acts. But Saul, still breathing threats and what's that next word? Murder. So we're not talking about just bad thoughts. He's, he's, he's breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So I want you to get this in your, in your head with me. Okay, this mob of people seized Stephen and began to pelt him with rocks until he died. And as they did so, Saul stood by uh, uh, smiling and approving everything that was happening in that moment. And then his great disdain, his hatred for this, for this new way of faith, this, this, uh, this, this new belief in Jesus, this hatred grows so big that he goes to the high priest and asks for permission to hunt these people down. He doesn't receive orders. Nobody above him said, hey, Paul, would you go do this? He goes to the high priest and he says, listen, if you'll give me letters, I'll go to Damascus and I'll bind any man or any woman belonging the way and I'll drag them back here to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be killed, to imprison them. Just give me the word and I'll do it. Now, do you think that there's a possibility 
that years later when Paul writes, forgetting what is behind, he might be writing about some of his own demons. See, here, here's the thing about forgetting what is behind. Shame is unbelievably weighty. And I, 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 know, I know some of us have that, that moment or that period of time where we did that thing that made us feel so dirty. Whether you were a believer or a non-believer, whether you were spiritual or non-spiritual, just in the deepest parts of who you were, it just made you feel dirty. And we can't believe that we did that or that we were part of that or that we betrayed like that, and it just haunts us. And so what we do is we busy ourselves and we try to stuff it down and we try to get rid of all that angst and all of that shame and all that guilt inside of us. And then, you know, maybe days later, probably maybe months later, or maybe even years later, all of a sudden Christ rescues us. He saves us and we lay our lives at His feet. But then what happens so often is that every time we draw near to Him, we're reminded of that horrible failure of the past. And what happens is it begins to define our lives. It begins to define who we are. And no matter how often we hear about the grace and the mercy of Christ, we just can't believe that it's for us because we're going not for what I did the guilt and the shame and the dirtiness that I felt and there's just no way and Paul says no 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 you're going to have to forget what is behind now now he doesn't mean forget everything as in wiping it from your memory because there are other parts of scripture like Psalm 77 11 where you're commanded to remember remember those moments where Jesus delivers us or he does something mighty in our life uh, hold on to those things so that when things grow dark you've got that as an anchor for your soul he, he, what he's saying to us when he's saying forget he's saying he's saying he's not going to give it in the past any time or attention He's saying, I'm not going to waste my time or my energy on what's already been done. It's like the line in the song. Uh, 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 it was so popular a number of years ago. There's that one line in the middle that says, I don't have time to maintain these regrets. We all have them, but he's saying, listen, don't live in the past. You've got to let them go. You can't live with your regrets. You can't maintain those regrets. Let me show you something. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. This is Paul again. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was, listen to what he says, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to hear what just happened in this text. He says, I, I was a blasphemer. I was a man who attacked and I persecuted the children of God. And, and he says, and you know what God gave me in return? He gave me mercy and love and faith and grace. Why? Look at what it says, verse 15. The scriptures tell us why. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. Okay, why did he receive mercy? Why did this persecutor, this blasphemer, this, this murderer of Christians receive mercy? That in me, as the foremost 
the greatest sinner of all, he said, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are, who are to believe in him for eternal life. Notice that's future tense. He's saying this, he saved me as an example for everybody else that would come along. Paul's saying, he's saying Jesus extended mercy and grace and love to me, this insolent, blaspheming persecutor of his people, so that no matter what's in your past, you'll know that this applies to you in 2019. So for those sitting there today going, man, I just I try to press in. I just can't imagine that this applies to me. In response, Paul echoes throughout history. He says this to us and he says, let me ask you a question. He says, have you ever killed someone? And if you did, have you ever killed innocent church folk who were praying for your forgiveness as you did it? Have you ever found a group of men and women and children and stripped them naked and beat them and bound them and led them through the cities naked until you got them to Jerusalem and there you either imprisoned them or killed them? No? Then Paul says, then why the pity party? He says, so, so you're saying the cross can apply to me but not to you? He says, did I ever tell you about the time that I held the jackets of, of men while I smiled and nodded in approval as they pelted one of God's servants to death with rocks? Did I ever tell you that story? Now what did you do again? He's giving an example saying, listen, you can't be worse than me. And if His grace can cover my sin, His grace can cover yours. You know what? One of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced personally or I've watched happen in other people's lives is when shame dissolves under the light of the gospel of Christ. I know we're talking a lot about shame and guilt here, but I want to address something else here too. Because I meet a lot of Christians who are living off of what Jesus did 10 years ago. Can I tell you that Nostalgia is one of the greatest enemies of what God wants to do in the present. When we live off of what Jesus did 10 years ago, then that means there are no strong ties to Him and no real passionate pursuit of Him today. But He did this thing back then and that's what we're living off of. And I think Paul's words ring, ring true even for that. He says, forget what is behind. What is in the past does not matter any longer. He says, forget Anything that hinders the pursuit of Christ. And can I tell you this? See, there's this tendency in our modern American evangelicalism to, to define the gospel with moralism to where we have a set of moral standards. Now, listen, I believe in holiness. I preach holiness. But when we define what it means to be a follower of Jesus by, by putting out a, a list of saying we do this, this, and this, and we don't do this, this, and this, the problem with that is eventually some human being is going to achieve that list they're going to accomplish that and they're going to say now I have done that and then they will begin to sit in judgment against those that, that have not reached that place and they're no longer relying on Christ for their salvation. They're no longer celebrating the mercy and the grace of God because it's all about what they've done. And Paul says, listen, even the good things in the past can become a hindrance for what I want to do in the future. But remember, that's just one piece. Look at look what's next. We'll spend most of our time here. Back to Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of, you, uh, uh, lo, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will, excuse me, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now let me just say this. There is something mysterious and sort of otherworldly about conversion. Because it's amazing how people can hear the same message unpacked for them year after year after year, many, many times, and never respond. Uh, and then one day, after years of hearing it, they hear the same message again, only this time, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit uses it, it just lights them up. Like my, my father-in-law, who for years and years was, was, uh, uh, rejected Christ, and then, and then finally late in his life, after hearing the message over and over and over and over again, finally, in one moment, in one time, in one set of circumstances, it came alive and he said, yes. See, there's that's something mysterious and otherworldly about, about the conversion when, we, when the Holy Spirit draws us to him. But godliness... I want to say this. Godliness does not happen accidentally. It never accidentally happens. No one wakes up on a Tuesday morning and says, Whoa, look at me. I'm godly. Look at that. Paul says you have to strive after it. Let me show you, show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 25. He says this. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Now there are several pieces that we need to talk about. First of all, when he says every athlete, he's talking about serious athletes. And I know there are some of us that in our past we've won some sort of city league championship. He's not talking about you. Don't lean back and say, yeah, I know what he's talking about there. You know, so it's not a reference to you at all. If you play basketball three times at the Y, this is not you, okay? At the highest level of athletics, we're talking about Olympic-type athletes. There is a self-discipline that is mind-boggling. And every, every aspect of their life is built around achieving optimal performance. From what they eat, to, to how much they sleep, to how they exercise. Everything is designed to help them achieve optimal performance. And they do that for something that is only temporary. You and I, then, should have the same consuming discipline in our lives because... We don't pursue what is perishable, but what is imperishable. So look at what he says next, verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I find uh, I myself should be disqualified. Now that's from the ESV. That's a great translation, but it's a word-for-word -word translation. Some of, excuse me, some of you may have what's known as a phrase by phrase translation, like the NIV. And in this uh, instance, this verse, it translated, it says, I beat my body and make it my slave. And I want you to know that is a great translation of what's going on in this text. And I want you, I want you to notice a couple of things. He says, in my pursuit of becoming a godly man, in my pursuit of becoming a Philippians 3 man, he says, I don't run aimlessly and I don't punch at the air. He says, I know where I'm going and I'm fighting the enemies of, of that path. He says, I, I don't just 
go to church and, and join a connect group and hope for the best. He says, I'm running on purpose and I'm fighting the enemies of that pursuit and I will beat my body and make it my slave. Now let me break this down as honestly as I can, okay? Let me just take this into real life, okay? When, I don't know about you, but when I am frustrated, when I'm angry in spirit, you know, you know what I want? Chocolate. Somebody get it, so I got an amen on that one. You know, if I'm frustrated, chocolate will make me feel better for a little bit. You know what else? I even go beyond that. I don't want just chocolate. I just want really good food. We have any other stress eaters in the house? Anybody else like that? You know, when things aren't going well, you know, we, I go to the refrigerator. I don't even know. It, it doesn't matter what's there. I'm going to eat it. You know what I want? In those moments, I want to fire up Spotify, and depending on whether I'm feeling sad or angry, I'm going to put on some sad music or some angry music. You know, Rage Against the Machine or something. Or, or, or I want to just park myself in front of the TV and zone out of life and just disconnect. Or, or maybe if I'm really angry inside, I want to physically fight somebody, preferably somebody smaller that I can take. Anybody, you know, I'm just being honest. Anybody here? You ever feel that way? See, that's what happens to me when my life gets disjointed. Everything in me, when things are, are going that way, everything in me, in my flesh, cries out to medicate and to numb what's gone wrong. So we say, feed it. You know, give me some food. Give me some chocolate. Give me some sleep. Give me something to make this stop. That's what my body wants. That's what my flesh wants. But what I need is Christ. What I need is to press in and, and to pray. What I need is to sit down and throw my life at His feet and confess and say, Lord, once again, I've taken the reins of my life and I've been trying to do it in my own way. But so often, that's the last thing I do. And this is what Paul is saying here. He's saying, my flesh wants this, but it's not what it needs. So I beat my body. I make it my slave. I say, I'm not giving you what you want. I'm going to make sure I take a hold of what I need. He says, I don't run aimlessly. I know where I'm trying to go. And I know what I'm trying to do in my life. I know the enemies of these things that I'm pursuing in my life. And I'm ready to fight them. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll pick it up in verse 7. It's a very interesting passage to me. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? Train yourself for godliness. <coughs> now that word train is a Greek word. The Greek word is gumnazu. Gumnazo, excuse me, gumnazo. Like you're taking, like, there's like, oh, he said the Greek word wrong. You know, uh, but, but it's, it's where we get our, our English word gymnasium. And, and it means to exercise vigorously or to sweat. So he's saying, sweat yourself to godliness. It's a very, very interesting thought, right? For, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, and it holds, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now listen to this. For, this, for to this end, we what? We toil and strive. 
There's some effort that it takes takes in our lives if we want to grow into into godliness, if we want to get past just a, a salvation experience and we want to become a godly man or a godly woman, if we want to become the Philippians 3 man, that's going to take some effort on our part. He said, for to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now I'll just say this. Thursday morning... Because everything's closed Wednesday. But Thursday morning, if you belong to a gym, then the, when you get there Thursday morning, there's going to be like 500 new people there. <laughs> Happens every year. I, believe it or not, I, I used to work out very regularly. used to go to the gym a lot. I know he doesn't show up anymore. People told me the other day, they said, you need to get in shape. I said, hey, round is a shape, okay? <laughs> so anyway, they... Uh, but, but, but you go in there on Thursday, the gym is going to be full and all the regulars are going to be, you know, they're going to be trying to correct things. They're going to be walking up to some guy and say, uh, excuse me, sir, uh, that's a bench press. I don't know what you're doing there, but you need to get off of that thing, you know, and, but, but here's the thing. And about six weeks from now, it's going to be the same old crew. And I think the reason that happens is that people go, you know, go into the new year with this, this time of, of introspection and this time of evaluation. And we, we go into the new year and we say, I need to get in better shape. But they haven't really defined what that even means. And they don't really know uh, what they're going to do to achieve that. They just, so they just pay through the nose, you know, turn over the firstborn child to, for a deposit to get a gym membership. And then they, they don't really know what they're doing or how they're going to go about it. There's no real plan and there's no real, re- real, no real way to measure their success as they move forward. And so they just give up. They just fade off in the background. And I believe the same thing holds true spiritually. We need to know. We need to do something spiritually. But we, but we, and we know that. But we don't know how to go about it. And we have no plan to help us grow. So we say things like, "Oh well, I'm weak in the word. I'm going to get in the word. I'm going to study. I'm going to meditate." I don't think you will. You say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to get better at praying. Well, when are you going to do that? Oh, uh, well, in 2020. I don't think you will. I, I, I really just need to plug into the body. I need to get involved. I don't think you will. Just because you say those things, I don't, that doesn't mean you're going to do it. Because godliness doesn't hap- happen simply because you want it. It happens because of striving and toiling and training and discipline. It happens because you fight for it. Now, I don't know about you, but I find in my life sometimes I just have a tendency to coast. Anybody here, you like being comfortable? You know, and we have sometimes have this tendency to think that things will just take care of themselves. And so the truth is, I have to have a plan. I have to have a plan for where I want to go as a man of God, as a pastor, as a leader in the church. I have to have a plan where I want to go as a husband, as a father, as a, as a sibling, as a son. I have to have a plan because if I don't have a plan, then my whole life is going to be filled up with want-tos 
that turn into I wish I would have. You hear me? Here's the funny thing. Some people live life, but most people let life live them. If I could encourage you today in the most practical way possible, I, I think we've got to spend some time asking. You, you need to ask yourself as you head into this new year, where am I running? And what are the enemies of my goal? Where do I want to go in my relationship with Jesus? And what is stopping me? What's going to fight against that? What are the enemies of that? If we're going to become Philippians 3 people, people who say, I count it all as loss. I count it all as dung compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. If, we, if we're going to become that, it will not happen accidentally. It will have to be fought for. It will have to be strived after. There will be toil involved. And, and here's the truth. I cannot tell you how to do it. I can't tell you what you need to do in your life because you know you and the Lord knows you. I'm easy to fool. I really am. You know, I mean, I have a tendency to think the best of people. I think that's a good trait. However, the, the bad side of that is that somebody can come in and they can say the right words to me and they, I can walk out of there thinking, man, that person is on the right track and yet they could be living like the devil when they leave, leave the church and I would never know that. But you know you. The Spirit knows you. You need to make some plans. You need to make the decisions. You need to ask yourself, where am I going this year? What do I need to see happen in my relationship with Jesus? And what is it that's going to fight against that? So you can be prepared for the fight. And you need to strive. You need to toil. You need to let people know. You need to let other people hold you accountable. You need to walk in deeper relationships. You need to do what you have to do to fight the enemies of what Christ has for your life. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes this. He said, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you don't know the story of, of Saul becoming Paul, you know, Saul gets his orders from the high priest. He gets a letter. He's on his way to Damascus. Jesus shows up on the scene in a bl blinding light. And, and, he, and Jesus asks Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul goes, who are you again? I mean, and, he, and Jesus says, I'm Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty cool conversion story, isn't it? Verse 13. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people. So, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when, I, but, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. You see that phrase? He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The idea here is that God, while Paul was still in his mother's womb, was saying, you're going to preach to the Gentiles. And then he's born and he has a few years of, of being the enemy of the church of Christ only to become its greatest missionary. Listen, I, I, here's the reality. We all come from different places. And some of, us, some of us in this room, you were born and raised in the church. You know? I mean, you were like, your mom was on the front pew and, and her water broke. And she started running out to go to the hospital. She tripped and fell. And you squirted out singing, I surrender all. Uh, should I apologize for that? I'm not sure. It's a beautiful picture to me. 
And listen, if that's you, you you can't even really get your mind around the idea of guilt and shame because honestly, you've grown up in church. You've never cursed. You've done the Christian thing and invented invented curse words, you know, like not a finger, you know, for those that are Christmas story fans. And and maybe if you're old enough, you had the Lord's Gym t-shirt back in the 90s, you know, and and you, you got into college and you joined a Christian fraternity or a sorority and you did well in there and then you met a Christian guy or a Christian gal and, and you lived well and they lived well and you guys got married. It's been unbelievably beautiful. In fact, you pray every morning from 4 a.m. to 9 a.m. And, and, and then you go about your day and, and you've got these beautiful little Christian babies and it's, a, and it's beautiful, it's powerful. Listen, and I'm not mocking that. I am begging Christ that that's the testimony of my daughters. That that's the life that they have. But listen, that is an amazing amount of grace to not to have to learn by the spilling of your own blood, isn't it? And I think from your mother's womb, God was saying, here's my plan. My church will need you, and they're going to need your story. But then there are others of us here, and all you have behind you is shame and failure and betrayal and sorrow and self-hate. And maybe from your mother's womb, Christ was saying, oh, oh, this story will bring hope to the hopeless. Maybe he was saying this story will help men see my grace in action. This story will remind people of my grace and my church will need this story. Oh, church, that we might know him that we would know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him. Oh, that all the things of this world would be counted as rubbish next to the surpassing greatness of Christ. Not that we've obtained these things, but one thing we do, forgetting what is behind. We press on. We push forward for what is ahead. Striving and toiling. Not running aimlessly, but knowing where we're going. Knowing what we're going to become. And and we're not punching at the air, but we're fighting against the very enemies that are keeping us from moving forward in Christ. Listen. That's how you enter a new year. That's why we're fasting and praying in January. Because you're saying, I know where I'm going. I'm going to fight my flesh. I'm going to fight everything that stands in the way. I'm ready to fight for it. Because I need it so badly. I want him so badly. That I'll fight for it. Would you bow your head and let's pray. Father, I pray God that you've just spoken to us very deeply today.